Well, may the Lord bless you and thank you for coming. I see there's lots and lots of people here. And uh, I think on behalf of the, the five young applicants who are asking for baptism, I, I can welcome you. On behalf of them and their families, we're glad that you're here. We thank you for coming. Um, by the way of introduction, I am not a pastor in this congregation. I'm the father of one of the young men in the instruction class, and that's the only reason you're seeing me up here this morning. I was asked to give a, a talk or a, a topic here, a sermon here this morning in relation to the baptismal service that we have. So in a, a number of moments, we're going to have five young people stand before you and give their testimony for Christ. You may find it interesting that the word testimony uh, is taken in our New Testament, when it's used in the New Testament, is taken from the Greek word martyria. It means a first-hand account of a very important event. It's taken from the Greek word martyria, which also translates into the English word martyr. So today I want to talk to you about something that I've entitled, Go Tell the World. And although we have five young world changers here sitting in front of us, we also have an entire congregation of people with a testimony. I'm talking today to the saved church, to a saved church. And our responsibility as Christians to be faithful to God is to go tell the world the good news of Christ, what he's done for us. And uh, we have a baptismal service here for five young adults who won't lose sight of that. But there's also several hundred others here. And I don't want to lose sight of that either and not just speak to five people, but I want to talk to an entire congregation. We all have a testimony for Christ. And I'm speaking to a saved church. And I'm calling you to go and tell the world what the Lord has done for you. So the title for the sermon is Go Tell the World. The subtitle then could be Engaging an Unbelieving World with Our Mind, with Love, and with a Life that Honors God. What good is a testimony if it's left unspoken? Or what good is a life that honors God unless that life is lived in the presence of an unbelieving world? So as we start here, the first thing we need to examine is what does the Bible tell us about God and man? In the passage that was just read, the Bible tells us that God has revealed himself. There's four observations taken from Romans chapter 1. God has revealed himself to all men the world over. Every person the world over at all times has knowledge of God. The question then, in, in what way has God made himself known to men? The second observation is that all men have knowledge of God and respond accordingly to that knowledge. The follow-up question, in what way do humans respond to the knowledge they have of God's existence? The third observation from Romans 1 is that God's self-revelation has an apparent judicial element. There's an element of judgment attached to this revelation. And the follow-up question then is, how much and what type of evidence is God required to provide before he can banish a person into an eternal separation from himself because of a person's refusal to acknowledge him? What is this judicial element? What is this knowledge of God? Is it just a knowledge of God's existence? Or is it a knowledge towards salvation or condemnation? The fourth observation is very simple. There is a gospel to be proclaimed, and we must be faithful. The question then is, what is this gospel? And it's provision that God has provided for sinful man through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I want to talk to you today in two parts, engaging an unbelieving world, first with our mind, from, from a thinking perspective, and then secondly, with a life that honors God. I may do things that are different from a typical Sunday morning service for this congregation, and uh, let's have some fun, maybe, and stay on the lighter side of things. We're engaging an unbelieving world with our mind. 
we're thinking our way through as we talk to unbelievers. It's possible to be one of the most brilliant, bright, intelligent people in the world, but to be so rude and so crass and so unkind that no one will hear anything we have to say. You can also be the most kind and loving person in the world and be so intellectually lazy that no one will ever take us serious. So we're finding a balance between being an intellectual person and a kind and loving person as we engage in an unbelieving world. So let's start by talking about engaging an unbelieving world with our mind. And I'll start by telling you a story. This summer I was working in a place and there was another person working there. I was doing some carpenter work and he was doing electrical work. And we developed a relationship. We would stop and talk. And on the last day of our work together, we had a long conversation. His name was Edward. And uh, towards the end of the conversation, I began to ask him questions about his belief in God, what he thinks about God, and his take on that. And here's what he said. The first thing he said is that he's a, he's a strict empiricist. And what he meant by that is he only accepts things that he can experience with his senses. He only believes in the natural world, things that he can experience through seeing, touching, hearing, smelling, and tasting. Nothing immaterial, nothing outside of nature, no ghosts, no angels, nothing supernatural. He then said if God were just to give him some evidence, some good evidence, he said, I might consider belief in God, but God hasn't given me much evidence at all. And then he said if God really wanted us to believe in him, he would reveal himself. He would stop by and say hello or things like that. He would come out from hiding and show himself to us. Therefore, he said he doesn't believe in God. Edward was very intelligent, and he's also very educated. So if you were to meet a person like this in your life, and these are the things he would say to you, what would your response be to him? What would you say to a person like that? We'll come back to Ed shortly and answer some of his questions, some of his statements. So when we talk about engaging an unbelieving world with our mind, the first thing to consider is that every person has a worldview. A worldview is simply a collection of settled beliefs by which we see the world and live our life according. The question is not whether or not a person has a worldview. The question is whether or not it's a good one. At the bottom of every person stands a worldview. At the bottom of every worldview stands one of two beliefs. Number one, God is. Number two, God is not. And I'm going to rule out the middle ground. Agnosticism as a fixed position is ruled out. So if a person has a worldview and they believe that God is, their premise is very simple. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God becomes the highest source of intelligence, authority, meaning, love, purpose, justice, morality. God becomes a measure of all things. If God is not, if your worldview is that God does not exist, then you're living in a chance, a freak, accident, random world. There is no design, there is no order, there is no purpose. It just is just happens to be. Man becomes the highest source of intelligence and authority. Things like meaning and love and truth and purpose and justice and morality, at best only human inventions, but which human gets to invent them? And man becomes a measure of all things. So what is it that shapes your worldview? What are some of the reasons you believe what you do? Are there external influences that shape the way we think and see the world we live in? What is it that shapes your worldview? What is it that makes 
your settled set of beliefs, what they are. Is it God? Is it the Bible? Are there some kind of external pressures that shape the way you see the world? Between 1861 and 1865, this nation was embroiled in the great civil war known as the war between the states. In, there were, there were 600,000 men who lost their life fighting the civil war. The war was largely fought over the issue of slavery. In 1865, a lot of people, in fact, probably a, a lot of uh, the high, high percentage of the population in America believed that slavery was okay. And yet at that point in time, America was considered to be a very godly nation. In 2024, virtually no one believes that slavery is okay in this country. America has increasingly become an ungodly nation. But what has changed? What's the thing that has changed? Or consider in 1972 when the Supreme Court handed down the Roe v. Wade decision and legalized abortion in this country. In 72, virtually no one thought that abortion was okay. In 2024, well, there was a recent survey conducted in where three-fourths three of the people surveyed said that abortion has no moral consequence whatsoever. It's just removing tissue. There's no, there's no moral consequence. But what has changed from 72 to now? And the answer is that in both instances, the law has changed. The law of the nation has changed. That tells us that governments then, just by imposing law onto their people, can actually condition the conscience of an entire nation. Unless, of course, that conscience has been preconditioned by God. So what is it then that shapes your worldview? Is it God, the Bible, or their external pressures? At the bottom of every person stands a worldview. At the bottom of every worldview stands one of two beliefs. Number one, God is. Number two, God is not. And many, many theologians have ruled out the middle ground. Agnosticism is ruled out, or it's put into the camp of the unbeliever. Although I will say that God the Holy Spirit is drawing many sincere hearts to himself, but that's not agnosticism. So, number one, a person has a worldview. And when you engage an unbeliever, you need to categorize him, put him into the, in the right perspective, the right worldview. If God is, then the world makes sense. If God is not, then it's a chance, random universe. Let's talk briefly about the existence of God. If you're talking to an unbeliever, and you're witnessing to a person who's not a Christian, and he says, how do you know that God exists? Or he says, you can't prove that God is. What would you say to that person? What's your response to a person like that? There's two prominent views within Christianity. I'll give you both of these in a moment. Um, I'll tell you a short story first. There's probably nothing I enjoy doing more than meeting a person in a random place who I have never seen before and probably will never see again in all likelihood. And I found myself at a Walmart just outside of Chester, Pennsylvania, and when I came up to the cashier to check out my purchases, the young person, young man behind the counter started complaining to me about his previous customer. He said she called me every name in the book. She said I was rude, I was uncouth, I was unkind. She said I was completely unfit for public service. And I says, well, whatever did you do to deserve that kind of language? He said I didn't speak to her. I just checked out her stuff and didn't, I didn't speak to her. And she became very angry and just unleashed on me. About that time, I saw he had a large rubber snake draped around his neck. So I said, what's with the snake? And he says, oh, nothing. I just do that to make the ladies scream when they come up. And I said, this, this fellow, 
is, um, is interesting. We had a conversation there. There was nobody behind me. And I asked him eventually, I said, what about, I said, you're an intelligent person. What about God? What do you think about God? Is God real? Does he exist? He said, of course God's real. He said, I believe in God. I said, all right, if God is real, what are the proofs? How do you know that God is real? And he said, I never thought about that. He said, I don't know. And so I shared a few things with him there. And as I was leaving, he had moved over to one of his fellow employees. And he was telling her the things that we had just said. He was, he was quizzing her out. How do you know God is? And things like that. But what would you say if a person would ask you that? If you're in conversation with a non-believer, and he says, you can't prove that God is, what would you tell that person? There's two views given to us by Christian thinkers over the centuries. I'll give you these two in a moment. But before we get there, I want to say four things about God's existence. Number one, God exists whether we prove it or not. He doesn't need us to prove his existence. But he does ask us to be faithful in our, in our witness. He requires us to be faithful. We can't just have sloppy answers. We can't be fideous and say, I just believe it because I believe it. Secondly, proof and persuasion are not the same. You can have a long conversation with a non-believer, and if at the end of the conversation he doesn't believe, or you haven't convinced him that God is real, you can leave that and saying, well, I guess I didn't persuade him. But you can still have proved, given proof for God's existence. His persuasion is not the test for your faithfulness and the truthfulness of your argument. Proof and, pers proof and persuasion are not the same thing. Uh, just because a person's not persuaded by what you said doesn't mean that you didn't prove what you said and prove the truth of God's existence. Third thing is the Bible is our bedrock. It's our foundation. It's our starting point. That's, there, there really is nothing higher than the Scriptures that we can test it by. The Bible is our bedrock. It's our foundation and our starting point. That means that our disagreement with unbelievers takes place at the onset of our conversations, not at the conclusion. The tension already happens at the beginning. The fourth thing I want to say is this. The Bible also tells us that we're to answer a fool according to his folly, lest he become wise in his own eyes. That means we actually stand alongside the unbeliever within his own worldview, but just long enough to show him that it's actually impossible. What are the two views given to us by theologians through the centuries when we talk about the existence of God? The one has been around much longer. The first, first one here that I give is the longer one. The second one is a newer. Some time ago, I stood right here in front of this congregation and I said this. I said, according to a world-renowned Christian theologian, the only two things in this world that we can know with absolute certainty are in the realm of mathematics and the realm of logic. That means that faith in God and the veracity or the truthfulness of Scripture must be taken on faith commitments. The problem with that view, there's two things wrong with it. The first problem is what we just said is that there are things in this world then that are more certain than God himself. We've just said there are things more epistemically or within the realm of human knowledge, more certain than God himself. The second problem with that is that human consideration and rationale stand as an authority over the scripture. So that view has lots of problems. Although it's endorsed by many well-intentioned and good Christian speakers, uh, it has lots of problems. 
What it ends up saying is that human reasoning and rationale are absolutes and God is only a possibility. We have to somehow reverse that, don't we? And say that God is the absolute. He's the bedrock. And that's the only reason that anything is possible at all. But how do we frame that view? So the second view then is this. This is given to us by more theologians of more recent vogue or recent time. The second view then would, would be stated like this. The proof for God's existence is that without God you couldn't prove anything. In other words, the proof for God's existence lies within the impossibility and the absurdity of the opposite. So that gives us two, two tables, doesn't it? Um, on the first side, we have God. And we would say, in, in that, on that side, if God exists, we go to the Bible, and the Bible tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So now we can explain a lot of things. We can explain what's called the uniformity of nature, or the fact that the world we live in the universe we live in behaves in a law-like fashion. It makes sense that the world, the universe behaves in a law-like fashion. It's interesting to note that even an unbeliever will use that premise to do science. But then he tells us that science is the very institution that disproves God. If God exists, that means there's a loving, moral, intelligent mind that stands over and alongside all of creation. We can now account for things like love and beauty and fairness and justice and worship. We can account for things like truth and meaning and purpose and morality. And what I mean by that is the concept of right and wrong. If you took just one of these aspects, just the aspect of worship, what in the world is worship in a world without God? How does a person account for worship if there's no God? Have you ever held in your arms a newborn baby? Or gazed awestruck into the night sky and wondered where it all came from? Have you ever worshipped your God in the morning at a sunrise? You move across a page and if there's no God, the impossibility of the opposite, of the, opposite the absurdity of the opposite. If there's no God, we're living in a random, chaotic, chance, freak, accident world. But even the statement that we live in a chance universe doesn't make sense within a chance universe. Why? Because it assumes to carry both meaning and truth, neither of which are, can be, or ever will be the product of a chance accident world. You can't even say it. You can't even say it. You see, there's thousands and thousands of people who deny that God exists, but they live their whole life as though he does. But the Bible says they refuse to honor or give thanks to him. They suppress that knowledge, suppress the truth. They cannot account for the fact that the world behaves in a law-like fashion. If your next-door neighbor comes over one morning and says he has a problem, his car doesn't start, he needs help, first of all, help him. But the moment he says that something is wrong, what does he mean something is wrong in a chance world? Shouldn't he rather say that, you know, it's absolutely astonishing. I live in this random, chaotic universe and for the last 100 mornings, my car actually started. But they don't live that way. And your, your responsibility is to remind them, if there is no God, then they are living in a random, chance, accident world, and they must play fair. 
They can't borrow from the Christian worldview to explain a world without God. What about love and justice and fairness and meaning and truth and purpose? At best, these are only human constructs or human inventions in a world without God. But which human gets to say? Let's take just one of these. Take the concept of morality, the concept of right and wrong. If there's no God, how do we ever come to a decision as to what's right and what's wrong? How do we know the truth of morality, the concept of right and wrong in a chance world? There's really just two options. Number one, it's the product of evolution. Secondly, it's a human invention. But which human? Let's say it's the product of evolution. Let's say the concept of right and wrong is a product of evolution. If I were to do something wrong, allegedly, and a policeman wanted to arrest me, what would happen if I would, if I would tell the policeman that what I did wasn't actually wrong, it's just that my morals are more evolved than his? Because evolution, by definition, is always changing. There's no fixed point of reference. It's always moving. So my morals are just more evolved than him, than his or the state's, and I haven't really, I haven't really done anything wrong. Secondly, if morality, the concept of right and wrong, is a human invention, should I then, in my quest to discover what's right or wrong, should I ask the Prime Minister of Israel or the leader of Hamas? You see, the problem that we have with entrusting morality into the hands of men is that we well know that one man's concept of violence may well be another man's concept of justice. So there has to be a God. There must be and there is a God who rules over the affairs of men. The Bible says that all men know God and no one will ever stand before God and testify otherwise. All people have knowledge of God. No person will ever stand in his presence and testify otherwise. But in what way do all men know God? What does the Bible even mean when it tells us that? In what way do men know about God? And what is this element of judgment that's associated to God's self-revelation? What does the Bible mean when it tells us that all men have knowledge of God? And in what way do they have that knowledge? All right. There's... um, there's quite a tension between how Romans chapter 1 should be interpreted between Christian theologians. It, the contention is so sharp that both sides now have their own names when talking about God's revelation in Romans chapter 1. The one side is called natural theology. The second side is something known as natural revelation. And I'll explain these two sides to you. Natural theology says that according to Romans chapter 1, God has revealed himself from heaven. And he has put certain things into the earth that when men look at them, they can think and reason and say, well, sure, that would indicate God. They can see that uh, this is made out of wood, which came from a tree, which came from another tree and another tree. But at the end of this long succession of trees, there had to be the first tree, which was probably there was a creator standing outside of the tree. So after a long series of reasoning, by observing the things in the world around you, your conclusion is that there's probably a God. There must be a God. Natural theology says that there's this long study of the world we live in that leads to an eventual conclusion that God is. Human reasoning is an absolute. God is a possibility. 
So that is the, the problem with natural theology, is what I just said. Human reasoning becomes an absolute. God is rendered as a possibility. Natural revelation is very, very different. And I'm going to illustrate this with a story. Natural revelation goes something like this. This is, this is my homespun version or illustration. I have a son. He's here today. He's about 24, 25 years old. He's now married and lives about an hour away. He has a beautiful family of his own in, in, uh, in Lebanon. But he lived for 20 years in my house. If I were to go somewhere and walk into a hardware store and look down the hallway and see my son, there would be an immediate, almost astonished recognition. I would throw my head back and say, Jeremy, what are you doing? There's an immediate, somewhat astonished recognition. I don't stand there and say that person's about the same height as my son. He's wearing the kind of clothes he generally does and things like that. But there's this immediate, almost astonished recognition. I throw my head back and I say, Jeremy, what are you doing? That's, I think, what the Bible is telling us about Romans chapter 1. When God has revealed himself to all people, it's telling us that every conscious, sapient human who walks, who wanders, who strays into God's world, throws his head back in an immediate, astonished recognition and acknowledges God. He, he recognizes God immediately. There's not a long series of reasoning and thinking. He throws his head back and he says, God. The Bible tells us some men acknowledge God and bend their knee. Others will reject that truth, suppress it, deny it, replace it with a lie, and move on. Let's talk about answering Edward, the man who I told you the story of a little while ago. Here's what I would say to Edward. If you deny God, you're living in a chance universe. And you have to play fair. You can't borrow or use a Christian worldview to explain a non-Christian world. And I would, everything he says to me, I would push him back, but it's a chance universe. It's a random world. There is no God in your, in your concept. It's a random world. Secondly, he claims to be an empiricist and only accept the rea reality of things he can experience with his senses, such as things he can see, touch, hear, taste, and smell. But what do you mean when you talk about trusting the reliability of your senses in an accident world? Reliable to what? It's a chance universe, and you're telling me that your senses are reliable? It doesn't even make sense. But they don't know that because they borrow from the Christian worldview. Thirdly, he said that he would believe in God if God would just, were just to give him better evidence. He just needs more and better evidence. I would say then your human reasoning is an absolute, and God is left dangling as it could be, as it could be. But how do you account for an absolute, an absolute certainty in an unplanned, unguided, unintelligent accident world? There's no accounting for it. And fourthly, he said as a materialist, he accepts nothing immaterial, nothing non-physical, nothing super, supernatural. No ghosts, no angels, no invisible, immaterial God behind the scenes. And my response to that is this. The very words, I don't believe in anything that's non-material, non-physical or supernatural, assume what? They assume to carry truth, meaning, rationality, all of which are immaterial, non-physical, and exist in a realm other than trees and rocks, the natural world. 
I'll dare say my friend Ned has never stubbed his toe in logic. And at the end of the day, he becomes just a living contradiction. He can't account for the things he's saying. It just all falls apart. So let's talk about, secondly now, about witnessing to an unbelieving world by living a life that honors God. How do we live a life that brings glory to God? The answer to that is probably, there's probably as many answers to that as there are people sitting in this auditorium. How do we bring every thought into the obedience of Christ without becoming a religious zealot or just subcuming to one more level of brand of religious moralism? How do we emulate our Lord, the most humble, obedient, selfless person, and yet the Bible tells us his life was filled with grace and truth and beauty? I think the first thing we do then is accept God's claim and his love on our lives. The Bible tells us that in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he first loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. As a Christian, then, you must know that because of Christ, you are fully accepted and loved by God. That's your starting point. You see, the starting point for Christianity is at best only the hope for finish line for all other religions the world over. The starting point for Christianity is at best only the hope for finish line for any other world religion And what is that starting point? It's the assurance of salvation. We have at the onset what they hope they may attain at the end. So the starting point for a Christian is that you're fully accepted and loved of God because of Christ and your assurance of salvation. God loves you and will never cease doing that. We're talking about witnessing to an unbelieving world by living a life that honors God. In the 1970s, just prior to the Islamic Revolution in the country of Iran, there was an older man running a bookstore. And one day, a young Arab came into the bookstore asking for a good book on Christianity. He said, I want the best book you have. And the man was haughty and arrogant. So the older man went back and brought out a large volume. The book was actually written by Josh McDowell entitled Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And he gave the book to the young Arab. The young man paid for it and was leaving the store. And almost at the door, the older man called out and he said, so you're a Christian then? And the young Arab turned back and says, no, he said, I'm not a Christian. He said, I am Muslim. And he said, I'm currently engaged, involved in studies at the local university. I'm working towards a doctorate in Islamic studies. And I'm writing my dissertation, my finals paper, on why Christianity is false. And I want the best thing you got because I'm going to demolish it. Six months later, the young man came back into the store and he said, I read the book and I can't refute the arguments. He said, the Bible is true. I have now accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. He asked the older man if he would baptize him there in the store. So the older man did that and with with love and concern, he baptized the young person. What would have happened if the older man would have said something like, well, I could have told you that. I could have told you that. Your belief is false. But he didn't. You see, there's a human side to evangelism. There's a human touch to evangelism. It's not just this intellectual one-upmanship that I can answer all of your questions and I can prove you false. But there's a human touch, a human side to evangelism. What better example than Jesus? His tenderness with the woman at the well. 
his forgiving spirit with the adulterous woman, his long-suffering for his disciples, and his undying love for a world in need. There's a human side to evangelism. There's a human touch. Evangelism is not encapsulated in, in, in like the intellectual side. There's a human side as well. Secondly, evangelism is a way of life. It's not something you do just random, sporadic. It's a way of life. Some of you may have been to California and witnessed firsthand the Golden Gate Bridge. It's considered to be one of the marvels of the, one, of the modern world. It spans like one mile across the water. Uh, enormous structure. After four and a half years of construction, it was opened to the public in 1937, and it's been in use ever since. The Golden Gate Bridge in California has a beautiful story of human ingenuity and workmanship and things like that. It also has a very tragic story, and that is that since its opening in 1937, more than 1,400 people who believed that life was no longer worth living walked to the bridge and jumped off the side and ended their life by suicide. There's a story told of a man living in San Francisco, 22 years old, who had come to the end of his life and said life is no longer worth living. And he left a note in his apartment, and the note said this, Today I've decided that life is not worth living. I'm going to walk the several miles through the city and walk to the Golden Gate Bridge. And when I arrive there, I will heave myself across the side and end my own life. But then his note said this, there's one exception. As I walk through the city, he said, if just on my journey, if just one person meets my gaze and smiles at me, then I'll refrain, then I won't do it. If just one person meets my gaze and smiles at me, his story becomes more tragic, given that the authorities found that note in his apartment, but not until after they had found his body floating in the San Francisco Bay. If just one person meets my gaze and smiles at me. Evangelism is not some idol that we place in a pedestal. It's not necessarily something that we traverse continents in pursuit of. For the Christian, evangelism is an everyday way of life. It's part of who you are. It's what you do. And then lastly, evangelism takes courage. And it takes doing. Shortly after World War II was over, there was a young historian traveling the country and surveying the the destroyed countryside. The country lay in ruins in Germany after the war, after the Second World War. He was documenting a lot of the things he see, that he saw, writing them down. And he came to a rather unusual situation. He came to a place in the German countryside. Far out away from the cities, he found a small church in the German countryside. Behind the church lay a railroad track. And then he, as he researched, he discovered that this church was actually active during, during uh, Hitler's Nazi campaign. But the, the railroad track, the trains never ran on Sunday. But as the war progressed, the trains did start running on Sundays. Only this time they were carrying human prisoners, humans that were loaded into cattle cars 
and were being taken on to their final destination. They were being taken to, to a death camp, an extermination camp. Imagine the church like that. If you're in church on a Sunday morning and there's trains running by with, with emaciated prisoners, skeletons, and as they, come, as they come near your church, they begin crying out and calling for help on a Sunday morning worship service. Many years later, the historian was back in New York City, and he discovered that there was an elderly lady living in New York City who had actually lived in Germany during the war. And so he set up an interview and went to talk to her. In the course of their conversation, he discovered that she had been a small girl who attended that church in the German countryside where real cars of human prisoners were shuttled past on a Sunday morning. And he said, that's interesting. They came near to the church and began calling, calling for help. He said, they probably saw you as, as the, the last symbol of hope. She said, they did. He said, then what did you do in response? What did your church do? She said, it was terrible. You can't imagine what we went through. She said, it came to the point that when we hear the train coming, we would stop what we were doing and someone would pick a song and we would sing and sing and sing. And as the train came closer, the cries became louder and we sang louder. She said, in essence, the only thing we did is we sang to drown out their cries. We sang louder to drown out their cries. There's no train. We're not living in Nazi Germany. There's no real cars going past our church house with emaciated prisoners on the way to a death camp. But there's an entire population of unbelievers on a fast track to a final destination and an eternity separated from God. And if we don't act now, if we're not interested in doing something now, we wouldn't be then either. We wouldn't be then either. Evangelism takes courage. It takes doing. And then lastly, I'll say this. Today there are five young souls who are asking for baptism to put on public display their lifelong commitment to following God. Today is a good day, but it's not the end of the road. It's, however, a day to rejoice in the greatness of your destiny, in the redemptive purposes of God, not just your salvation, but to the unbelieving world that God is calling you to. So as we think about engaging an unbelieving world, engaging an unbelieving world with our minds, with love, and with a life that honors God, it takes both. It takes both. Christianity has the answers, but it also has the love and the touch that's needed to lead people to Christ. And I'll give the time back, I think, to Glenn at this time.